Today on Lawfare, no bull. The House Foreign Affairs Committee held a virtual hearing on November 16th, focused on the national security implications of climate change in the Arctic. The witnesses were Admiral Paul Zukunft, former commandant of the United States Coast Guard, Dr. Susan Natali, Arctic Program Director at the Woodwell Climate Research Center, Dr. Daly Sambo Duro, Chairperson of the Inuit Circumpolar Council, and Mr. Luke Coffey, Director of the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. To elaborate on the many issues facing the Arctic and to offer their unique perspective, we've invited four expert witnesses to explain the national security, environmental, and societal impacts that global warming poses to the Arctic. I welcome and thank Admiral Paul Zunkoff, former Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, Dr. Susan Natale of the Woodwell Climate Research Center, a veterinary research institution in, in uh, the congressional district that I represent, uh, Dr. Daly Sambo Durob uh, of the uh, Anuit Circumpolar Council, and Dr. and rather Mr. Luke Coffey uh, from the Heritage Foundation for being here today. That's a lot of witnesses, uh, but we're going to cover a lot of uh, subject matter here. This is the first House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing on the Arctic in this conference, and I believe each witness's testimony is essential to better understand the climate, the people, the geostrategic interests of the region. Uh, with that, I welcome uh, an honest assessment where we need to go in our pursuit of a comprehensive Arctic strategy from our expert witnesses, and I want to thank them for being here, realizing that uh, some of them have uh, uh, are working out of a different time zone, uh, and, and it was a little uh, more personally difficult in that regard. And I'd like to uh, now uh, call on our witnesses uh, for their opening statements. Uh, first, I'll introduce Admiral Paul F. Zumkoff, uh, who has served as the 25th Commandant of the United States Coast Guard from 2014 to 2018 coming from my district, uh, a coastal district, uh, Admiral, I can't tell you uh, my great esteem and appreciation for the Coast Guard uh, and their daily work. Uh, welcome, uh, and now I recognize you for uh, five minutes for opening statement. Uh, Chair Keating, uh, thank you for those kind remarks and ranking member Fitzpatrick and members of the subcommittee. Uh, the United States has been an Arctic nation for the past 154 years after Secretary of State William Seward brokered the purchase of the Alaska Territory from a then cash-strapped Russia at a cost of 7.2 million in then dollars, or roughly two cents per acre. It was then dubbed Seward's folly, but it has proved to be strategic foresight, and not simply due to the vast natural resources in our 49th state, but for had it not been for such a folly, the Russian Republic and his military arsenal would currently occupy this region, and the U.S. would at best be a near-Arctic nation. So we have strategic foresight dating back to 1867, and what I will call strategic afterthought as it pertains to the Arctic over the past several decades. We have a presidential policy directive, strategy, and memorandum released by the three previous administrations, respectively. But each of those were released at the trailing edge of those administrations and failed to carry the full weight from one administration to the next. And I'll come back to that in my closing. Over the past half century, as the chair has mentioned, the Arctic has warmed at nearly twice 
the rate than the rest of the planet. I witnessed this firsthand when in 2017, I visited the Jakob Sabin Glacier in Greenland that is moving at an accelerated pace into the North Atlantic Ocean. When I asked the Inuit elders in Alulasat what I was witnessing, their response in two words was climate change. Just as profound, sea ice is in retreat across the Arctic Ocean and great power competition is rapidly filling that void, particularly Russia. Russia operates a fleet of icebreakers that is nine times that of the United States, yet it has a GDP that is nearly one-tenth of that of the United States. Natural islands are being militarized, icebreaking corvettes with a cruise missile package that can range the northern tier of the United States and beyond are being delivered, and its extraterritorial ter extra claims extend up to the North Pole. And then there's the northern sea route. An international strait under the Law of the Sea Convention that connects the Asian and European markets while trimming one-third of the transit time by bypassing the Suez Canal for commercial shipping during the ice-free season. But Russia not only treats the Northern Sea Route as its internal waters, but has imposed draconian measures for any vessel to include military ships, and yes, U.S. ships, to request permission to enter and procure the services of a Russian icebreaker and ship pilot before transiting the Northern Sea Route. Meanwhile, China deems itself a near-Arctic nation, although its northernmost extreme is some 900 miles south of the Arctic Circle. China has invested heavily in Russia's LNG facility on the Yamal Peninsula and in the economies of Greenland and Iceland. China gained observer status on the Arctic Council in 2013 and recently delivered its second icebreaker with aspirations of launching a nuclear icebreaker to advance its Belt and Road Initiative in the Arctic. While I am pleased to see the U.S. Coast Guard has full funding for two heavy polar security cutters, it is clearly two decades behind in the acquisition and delivery schedule. Our nation's only heavy icebreaker, Polar Star, has been in service for over 45 years now, while serving in the harshest environments on the face of the planet. The U.S. lacks a deep water port in the Arctic that compromises sustained at-sea operations in that domain, while bandwidth and maritime domain awareness above 70 degrees north are woefully inadequate. While I served as Commandant of the Coast Guard, I was fortunate to establish an Arctic Coast Guard Forum in 2016, comprised of the Coast Guards from the eight-member Arctic Council nations that have been conducting combined exercises in the Arctic ever since. And where the U.S. lacks strength in numbers in the Arctic, there is strength in our alliances. Five of the eight Arctic Council nations are members of NATO, while Finland and Sweden, Sweden are key contributors to NATO-led operations. Collectively, our alliances have an aggregate fleet of 35 icebreakers to include Norway's Svalbard-class icebreaking patrol vessels to re reduce the numbers gap with Russia. I close by stating that this administration has an opportunity to synthesize the Arctic initiatives of the three previous administrations where there is a commonality across all three of those administrations so that this Arctic roadmap can gain momentum now. The reactivation of the Arctic Executive Steering Committee this past September is clearly a step in the right direction. Finally, on the matter of maritime governance, the U.S. is not positioned to govern diplomatically in this realm until such time it ratifies the Law of the Sea Convention. Chair, I, I thank you for this opportunity to testify, and I look forward to your insights and questions. Thank you. 
Well, thank you, Admiral, uh, and uh, thank you for that sobering testimony and uh, look forward to some questions. Second witness I'd like to introduce is Dr. Susan M. Natale. Is, she's the Arctic Program Director at the Woodwell Climate Research Center in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And it's interesting, uh, just a few miles from where I live, uh, it's uh, interesting too that it wasn't too long ago that we saw the Armstrong, uh, the ice-breaking vessel NSI, uh, as an asset uh, set launch through there. And, and they're dealing directly on land with Woods Hole. So I look forward to your testimony uh, now recognize uh, Dr. Susan Natale. Thank you to the committee, um, in particular, Representative Keating for inviting me to provide testimony to this hearing. Um, I'm very honored to be here. Um, I'm Dr. Sue Natale. Um, um, I'm the Arctic Program Director and a Senior Scientist at the Woodwell Climate Research Center. Um, I'm an Arctic ecologist, and I study the effects of permafrost thaw and northern wildfires on Arctic lands and the global climate. So Woodwell Climate Research Center is a nonprofit organization. We're based in Falmouth, Massachusetts, made up of researchers who work with partners worldwide to understand and combat climate change. So while the world has already warmed 1.1 degrees Celsius on average above pre-industrial levels, the Arctic is warming more than two times faster than this global average. In the coming years, Arctic temperatures are projected to continue to rise at an accelerated rate, further exacerbating climate hazards, including wildfires, sea ice melt, coastal erosion, and permafrost thaw. Okay, so permafrost is ground that has been frozen for two or more consecutive years. Um, it's also been frozen for many hundreds to thousands of years. Permafrost underlies about 15% of the Northern Hemisphere land area and approximately 85% of Alaska's land area. From a global climate change perspective, permafrost thaw is critically important because the permafrost region stores vast amount of carbon. There's roughly twice as much carbon stored in permafrost as is currently contained in the entire Earth's atmosphere. Once thawed, this previously frozen carbon can be broken down by microbes and released into the atmosphere as greenhouse gases, methane and carbon dioxide. The release of greenhouse gases from thawing permafrost can accelerate climate warming, leading to additional thaw. As stated in the International Panel on Climate Change's recently released sixth assessment report, the loss of permafrost carbon is irreversible on a human relevant timeframe. The report projected that between three and 41 billion tons of carbon dioxide will be released by thawing permafrost for each one degree Celsius of warming by 2100. However, this range likely underestimates the potential of permafrost carbon emissions because currently no global models include some important thaw processes, such as thaw-induced ground collapse. When accounting for the full scope of thaw processes, cumulative per permafrost carbon emissions by the end of the century could be on par with continued emissions from a country like Japan, or as high as continued emissions from the United States. As a result, permafrost thaw emissions could take up between 25 and 40% of the remaining carbon budget to stay below 2 degrees Celsius. This means that we need to be cutting fossil fuel emissions even faster than is currently understood. The local and regional implications of permafrost thaw are also widespread and significant. 
Permafrost thaw can cause the ground to sink, a phenomenon known as subsidence. And when there's a large amount of ice in the permafrost, as seen here, the ground can abruptly collapse, which creates hazardous conditions for Arctic residents and contributes to the rising costs of climate change. These hazards are already being experienced across Alaska, endangering human health, destroying public infrastructure, threatening water, cultural resources, traditional food storage and ways of living, and access to subsistence resources. Additionally, foundations of military infrastructure in the Arctic are already cracking and becoming increasingly unstable due to ground thaw. The risk and severity of climate impacts are particularly high for coastal communities in Alaska where loss of land fast sea ice is increasing storm impacts and permafrost thaw is exacerbating coastal erosion rates. Almost a decade ago, the US Government Accountability Office identified 31 Alaskan villages that face imminent threat from flooding, erosion, and permafrost thaw. At the time of the report, 12 villages were seeking relocation options. However, none of these villages have yet fully relocated in large part because of a lack of a governance framework to facilitate relocation efforts. We're working with our partners in some of these communities to monitor the catastrophic and combined effects of permafrost thaw, flooding and erosion, known as USTEC, to support climate adaptation planning. Permafrost thaw is already occurring in Alaska and across the Arctic. Domestically, we need to act now to ensure that communities in Alaska and federal agencies are prepared for these impacts and put into place aggressive mitigation and adaptation policies to respond to these changes and to prevent further avoidable climate warming. Thank you. Dr. Daly Sambo DeRoe is the chairperson of the Inuit uh, Cir Circumpolar Council, uh, fresh back from uh, COP26 in Glasgow, uh, where I also attended. Uh, welcome back and thank you for joining us. I now recognize you for five minutes. Thank you very much, uh, Representative Keating, and also thanks to the Commandant and also uh, Dr. Natali for the comments uh, that they've provided thus far. Uh, very quickly, I just want to precede my written testimony with uh, a couple of comments that security from our perspective uh, means something much more than national security. It is really the state of being free from danger or threat. But as you've already heard, we're facing uh, dangers and threats uh, presently to our cultural security, our environmental security, our economic security, our food security, or essentially our overall security. It's not lost on any observer that Arctic matters um, have emerged in the way of high politics. And therefore, it's crucial for the international norms, rules, and responsibilities uh, that have emerged by nation states, that these remain at the core of our understanding of Arctic relations. Um, so again, I'm, I'm very pleased to make some comments on behalf of the Inuit Circumpolar Council. We represent approximately 180,000 Inuit across Inuit Nunat, our traditional territories. And our traditional ter territories cover nearly half of the Arctic region throughout Chukotka, Alaska, Canada, and Greenland. The Arctic is our homeland. Over thousands of years, we've nurtured reciprocal, symbiotic, and respectful relationships between our peoples and the Arctic environment. And we have transferred our knowledge through countless generations. 
our cultural identities, values, spirituality, livelihoods, and overall mental and physical wellness are tied to our total environment, of which we are an intimate part. Climate change is of primary concern. Its multiple impacts are adversely affecting our societies, threatening our overall cultural integrity, from threats to our food security and food systems, to relocation and displacement, to adverse impacts on our health and well being, to the biodiversity of our ecosystems, essentially our entire way of life. Climate change is damaging and disrupting the natural elements of our lands and territories, including our marine environment. Climate change impacts are also compounded by state imposed laws and regulations that hinder our rights and access to resources and exacerbate issues such as atmospheric pollution, substandard and unreliable infrastructure, increased vessel traffic and shipping, industrialized fishing, unsustainable development, and energy solutions that have been framed as green, all of which are driven by others far from our homelands and without our consent. Yet we remain optimistic because we ourselves have solutions. We are prepared to contribute. We simply demand respect for and recognition of our distinct status, rights, and role, as well as our own governance structures, including our right to maintain, own, and control our knowledge systems to effectively contribute to research and the co-production of knowledge. Upon this foundation, we can provide Indigenous knowledge that will ensure that you, as policy and decision makers, have the best available information to base your decisions upon excuse me, your decisions upon. Regarding the subject matter of this hearing, our overall collective security is threatened. Our security includes diverse elements from the Arctic Ocean, its coastal seas, and the cryosphere, which are critical ecosystems that must be protected through partnership with Inuit. And our future security depends upon our distinct involvement in all matters concerning the dynamic relationship that we have with our homelands. We were organized in the midst of the Cold War to adopt Bernard Barrick's use of the term in 1947. Barrick's original interest is aligned with our hope that the world can renew itself physically or spiritually. As far back as 1977, we addressed Arctic security by adopting a resolution specific to the peaceful use of the Arctic. These actions are reflected in the ICC Arctic policy, as well as a 1983 resolution, and more recently within the 2018 Utkiavik Declaration adopted at our last General Assembly in Utkiavik. The latter directs ICC leadership to lay the foundation for diplomatic dialogue on the establishment of an Arctic zone of peace. Indeed, the UN mechanism that crafted the Antarctic Treaty, the Seabed Treaty, and other nuclear weapon free zones has been explored by the ICC. We urge all Arctic states, including the US, to consider this constructive mechanism. Furthermore, we have adopted the Circumpolar Inuit Declaration on Arctic Sovereignty, which underscores internationally affirmed human rights standards, including the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It also calls for close cooperation among Arctic states and Inuit on all matters of Arctic sovereignty. Significantly, the ICC chose to launch this declaration at the foreign minister's gathering that coincided with the Melting Ice Conference in April 2009. In conclusion, we view these matters as interrelated. 
We respectfully request that the US adopt the same perspective and specifically seriously consider how climate change is impacting Inuit. We ask that you ensure that Inuit have the financial means to address adaptation and mitigation on our own terms, as well as the intellectual and political space to make substantive contributions in favor of ourselves and the United States. Our direct participation should be afforded in relation to every issue that impacts Inuit lands, territories, and resources, from national security to so-called green energy solutions, to priorities for development, to safeguarding the marine environment, and ultimately our pathway toward ensuring our own cultural integrity, our own cultural security. We are an essential force in all of these questions. In my estimation, we are the central bastion of protection of the Arctic, and we urge the whole of the US government to recognize the substantive contributions that we are willing to make. Thank you. Next witness is Mr. Luke Coffey. He's the director of the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, you're now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, uh, Chairman Keating, Ranking Member Fitzpatrick, and distinguished members of the committee. I am honored to speak before this esteemed committee today about Arctic security issues. As was already pointed out, the U.S. became an Arctic power on October 18, 1867, and with a stroke of a pen, the then Secretary of State William Seward ended Russian influence in North America and gave the United States direct access to the Northern Pacific and Arctic Oceans. In his, re in, in his, re in his retirement, Seward was asked what his greatest achievement was, and he said, the purchase of Alaska, it'll take another generation to find it out. Melting ice has led to an increase in scientific, commercial, tourist, and energy exploration activity in the region. This in itself has led to a growing military presence in the Arctic, but not because there's a threat of war, but because many of the capabilities needed in the region, such as search and rescue, are more immediately, and at least for now, more effectively provided by militaries and coast guards. Mr. Chairman, Today, the US has four primary security interests in the Arctic when it comes to uh, national security. Firstly, ensuring the territorial defense of the United States. In this sense, Canada, our Northern neighbor is vital. Relations with Iceland and Greenland are also important in this context. Secondly, enforcing US sovereignty in the region. In the Arctic, sovereignty equals security and stability respecting the sovereignty of others while maintaining the ability to enforce one's own sovereignty ensures that the chances of armed conflict in the region remain low. Thirdly, meeting treaty obligations in the Arctic through NATO. Five of the world's eight Arctic countries belong to NATO, but the Alliance has no agreed policy on the region. Finally, ensuring the free flow of shipping and other economic activities in the region. Mr. Chairman, while the military threat in the Arctic remains low, U.S. policymakers cannot ignore Russia or China's role there. Both directly impact America's ability to meet its security interests. Russia's recent actions to bolster its military presence in the Arctic is concerning. Russia now has at least 34 military installations in or near the Arctic. It is optimizing those facilities for cold weather warfare, and it has expanded the variety and sophistication of the capabilities deployed to the region. 
And it is also increasing the range and tempo of the often very aggressive nature of its air and sea patrols in the Arctic region. There's also an economic aspect of Russia's activities in the Arctic. The Northern Sea Route, which runs along Russia's northern coast connecting European with Asian markets is often touted as a possible alternative and even a rival to the Suez Canal. However, some perspective is needed. Last year, only 32 million tons of goods were shipped along the route, compared to the 1.2 billion tons that transited the Suez Canal. Of the 32 million tons of goods that shipped along the route, only 1.2 million tons made the full journey between Europe and Asia. So this is one-tenth of 1% 1 of the total volume shipped through the Suez Canal last year. And this route is not without risk. Shipping lanes are far removed from search and rescue facilities. Oil and gas make up about 82% of the volume of goods shipped along the Northern Sea routes, increasing the odds of an ecological disaster in the region. And there are currently about 20 vessels as we speak here, as we meet here today, that are either stuck or they're struggling to make it across the icy waters. In simplest terms, China sees the Arctic region as another place in the world to advance its economic interests. But considering the problems that China has created in other places around the world, there are reasons to be worried by their activities in the Arctic. Beijing's Arctic strategy offers a useful glimpse of how it wants the rest of the world to see the role of China in the Arctic region. Running 5,500 words long in the English language version, the strategy is littered with all the popular Arctic buzz phrases, such as common interests of all countries, law-based governance, climate change, and sustainable development. Now, the irony is now lost on observers of the South China Sea, where China has shunned international norms to exert dubious claims of sovereignty, or by the fact that China is the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Even though China's closest point to the Arctic Circle is more than 800 nautical miles away, Beijing refers to itself as a near-Arctic state, which is a term that is completely made up. Extending Beijing's logic to other countries would mean that Kazakhstan, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, Germany, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, and Ireland are also near-Arctic states. In conclusion, I want to highlight some of the actions that we should take. We need to increase our freedom of navigation operations in the Arctic. We need to adequately invest in the U.S. Coast Guard and U.S. Navy's Arctic capabilities. We need to continue to raise awareness of China's questionable ambitions in the region and make sure that China does not try exceeding what it is allowed to do under its status as an observer in the Arctic Council. We need to get NATO to finally acknowledge its role in the Arctic and perhaps even hold a future NATO summit above the Arctic Circle. And finally, we need to increase America's diplomatic, economic, military, and scientific presence in Greenland, Iceland, Svalbard, and Jan Mayan. These four islands are essentially the forward operating bases of the North American continent and serve as what I like to call the Arctic chain of defense for the United States. Now, none of these actions are about preparing for war. They are simply about preparing for the future. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and members of the committee. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Mr. Coffey. Uh, I think we hear from uh, the four witnesses uh, when we're talking about uh, our nation's security uh, in this region, we have to look at it through the lens of their testimony. Uh, certainly, uh, the scientific community is part of our security 
uh, there. It's necessary to understand what's going on. The uh, understanding uh, and input from indigenous, the indigenous population is important for our success. Uh, the navigational, economic, and military aspects, it's all intertwined. So thank you for your testimony. Uh, I'll now recognize members for five minutes each and pursuant to the house rules, all time yielded is for the purposes of questioning the witnesses. Because of the virtual format of the hearing, I'll recognize members by committee seniority, alternating between Democrats and Republicans. If you miss your turn, please let our staff know and we'll circle back to you. If you seek recognition, you must unmute your microphone and address the chair verbally. I'll now recognize myself for uh, five minutes. I think I'll start uh, with uh, Admiral uh, Zuko, uh, because you laid out uh, very clearly the strategic afterthought posture that the U.S. has had. Uh, and one of the reasons for having uh, this hearing early in this administration is to try and see if we can accelerate uh, the interest and involvement in the Arctic area uh, on all the fronts we've discussed, uh, because that's something that critical uh, to our economic and security interests. Now, a national intelligence estimate by the National Intelligence Council on climate change and international responses uh, that show their increasing challenges to the U.S. national security was released just in October uh, of 21. And, and it states the Arctic and the non-Arctic states almost certainly will increase their competitions uh, in the area uh, by 2040. And, it's, and it's, it says it's largely economic, but the risk of miscalculation even modestly uh, could be great. So, Admiral, I'd like to, uh, you laid out the situation. Can you uh, spend some more uh, and give us more insight, some more time and give us more insight on the risk of miscalculating uh, just how these involvements uh, impact our security in all the ways we mentioned? Uh, thank you, Chair. And I would just categorize that our, our presence in the Arctic is, is, is late to the game. Um, Russia has de facto established itself as a regional hegemon. Um, and we're hearing the same rhetoric coming out of Moscow as well, uh, almost thumbing their nose at, at any effort we make. Um, to its credit, and to follow up on the uh, testimony by Mr. Coffey, uh, there was a large NATO exercise on the Greenland-Iceland side of the Arctic uh, in 2019. We're waking up. Um, but we're a little bit late to that wake-up call. Um, we clearly, the United States cannot influence this region unilaterally. We've got to do so through our trusted partners. Um, at the same time, we can't treat everything as an adversary in the Arctic. Uh, economically is going to be a key driver in this region. Um, and bad things can happen, search and rescue, which is why I established an Arctic Coast Guard forum. We have the Arctic Council that puts out uh, binding agreements, but no teeth behind it. So the Coast Guards are filling that vacuum to address uh, marine environmental protection, uh, indigenous tribes, uh, and as well as search and rescue in the region. So at least it builds some trust and confidence building measures, especially when we add Russia to that mix. Um, but we need to invest in this region, which is why we need a strategy at the onset and, and a strategy that isn't just a skeleton, but we can put flesh on those bones as well. Good. Thank you. I just wanted to jump into the uh, an issue that uh, was a curiosity to me. Uh, you know, in Russia, those massive fires that occurred in Siberia and through the areas, the, the magnitude is unbelievable. 
Uh, I'd like to, uh, you know, ask uh, our panel, uh, particularly probably uh, Dr. Natali, how much do we know, how much scientific research into the magnitude of the permafrost uh, effect there in those fires, how much have we been able to analyze given so much of it occurred in Russia? Um, yeah, thank you for that question. So we, we can get information using satellites on fire extent and also emissions. So, and we also do have scientific collaborations with many Russian scientists. So there's certainly one of the challenges of doing scientific region in the Arctic is that it comprises multiple nations and data sharing is without certainly a challenge. Um, but there's also lots of uncertainties because when we think about, you know, changes in Arctic lands, permafrost is below the ground. You cannot always often see that with satellites unless there's some pretty substantial ground collapse. And by that point, the impacts have already happened. And also greenhouse gas emissions from the Arctic. Um, we don't have the capacity satellites to, to, to view this across the Arctic via satellites. And so the Arctic is a pretty vast place. It's not accessible. Could you share with us too the magnitude of this? Uh, I think it's something that uh, escaped a lot of people's attention, but the magnitude of those fires in Russia. Yeah, I mean, those fires, there, there were order, you know, in the United States, we, there's lots of conversations about fires that are burning out west, and this is orders of magnitude, higher emissions that are happening in these fires in Russia. And the reason that the, there's so much carbon greenhouse gases coming out of these fires, not just the area of the fires, is because when in the Arctic, because there's so much carbon below ground, it doesn't just burn the vegetation and the trees above ground, it actually burns the soil. And one of the things that's happening in the Arctic, because the ground isn't refreezing, these fires are continuing to last through the winter. So you're having fires from one year are causing more fires in the following year because they can smolder below ground, just slowly burning this, this carbon that's below the soils. Um, and, and honestly, we, when we think about the carbon emissions that are coming as a result of permafrost, as a result of these wildfires, and what we can expect in the future, I would say the scientific numbers um, were, I would say, very um, likely underestimating. So when thinking about risk, uh, personally, I would lead towards the high end of some of these ranges because these processes currently are not incorporated into our models, um, into our full scientific understanding. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, my time has expired for now. Chair recognizes Congressman Pfluger for five minutes. No, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the, uh, the witnesses for uh, your contributions to this. Um, I'd like to start off uh, with, with Mr. Coffey uh, talking about some of the resources that we see in the in the Arctic and some of the geopolitical challenges that we face right now with regards to control of Eastern Europe. And you can start in the Baltics and run all the way down through uh, the countries that that, uh, that border Russia, and you can go all the way into the Balkans uh, and, and see the number of countries that are in some ways being held hostage to energy that is uh, produced by Russia um, and to the terms and conditions by with, with which you have to uh, sign up to, uh, to use that energy. So, Mr. Coffey, can you kind of talk to us a little bit about um, the resources that, that are that are in the Arctic um, and and how those can be used to diversify uh, energy security for our European partners and allies, uh, and, and how that may also contribute to stabilizing uh, what what we know as a competition, um, and maybe even maybe that's a generous word, but uh, with Russia. Thank you. Um, that's a very important question. Uh, 
the reality is that although the region is rich in natural resources, uh, accessing these resources in a uh, financially viable or economic or environmentally safe way uh, is very difficult. And in the case of um, uh, one limiting factor is the advancement in technology to extract these resources in an economically viable and environmentally safe way has not kept pace. Uh, in terms of the alternatives uh, that might be provided to Europe for alternatives to energy security coming from Russia, I would actually say that the Arctic is less important than, let's say, other regions of the Eurasian landmass, such as the Caspian region, the South Caucasus, where I think there's a lot of potential for Europe to seek alternatives to its oil and gas away from Russia. Uh, but that being said, there, uh, there are suspected to be a large number of uh, rare earth mineral deposits in the Arctic region. Uh, we heard about this debate uh, when President Trump suggested the United States purchases Greenland um, about the, the potential in Greenland for these resources. But the, you know, take Greenland, for example, uh, it's a very uh, remote uh, part of the world. No two cities in Greenland are connected by a road, uh, so there's very little infrastructure. And right now, most of Greenland is covered by an ice cap that is three times the size of Texas, mm -hmm. and at its deepest point is uh, almost two miles thick. Uh, let, let so it's possible to really get these minerals. Let, let me let me ask a quick question here, as as time is going to run out on us. I mean, how, how bad of a how bad of a situation energy wise is Europe in? right now for this this coming winter. T tell us about the energy crisis they're facing and how bad it's gonna be. Yeah, Europe is facing a, a major energy crisis, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, where Russia once again uses the export of LNG, or of, of natural gas, excuse me, as a tool of foreign policy and a tool of aggression. Uh, this can be mitigated in the medium to longer term by focusing more on uh, the Southern Gas Corridor pushing for a Trans-Caspian gas pipeline connecting Turkmenistan across the Caspian to the Southern Gas Corridor and pushing for more U.S. LNG exports to Europe. But I appreciate that this isn't the specific nature of the, uh, uh, of the hearing today, but it's still all connected in a sense because as Europe wants to minimize or reduce its greenhouse emissions, natural gas, of course, is considered a transition fuel and if they're having difficulty paying the high prices for the transition fuel, then this could slow down Europe's ability to meet uh, carbon emission reduction targets in the coming years. Well, I think it is absolutely connected, and I appreciate you making that point because um, what, what we're doing by not allowing our partners and allies to use uh, the cleanest burning uh, LNG in the world, or the cleanest burning natural gas in the world, um, which comes from the United States, is then pushing it to China and Russia, who will fill the void. Uh, and so any concerns that we have uh, regarding our Earth, our climate, and the future uh, need to take into account the fact that those two people, China and Russia, were not at the summit. They didn't participate, and they don't care. Um, now uh, the chair recognizes the vice chair of the committee, uh, Congresswoman Spanberger, for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Keating. I appreciate everyone's uh, willingness and, and uh, comments here before the subcommittee uh, on this particularly important topic. Um, Admiral Zunkov, I would love to begin with you. Uh, first, thank you for your service 
but I, I'd like to focus my questions on Russia's role um, and interest in shaping the future of the Arctic. Um, Mr. Coffey just spoke about the, the scope and size of ice in the Arctic. And so my question is really focused on as that ice melts, um, the Russian military is really becoming more engaged in the high north, um, rebuilding military infrastructure along the coast, requiring military escorts for commercial vessels along the coast, and really reposturing their forces in the region. So could you, based on your experience, can you describe the extent of Russia's military modernization in the Arctic? Um, and what risks do you think are created by the posture that they are taking on? And also, um, as a follow-on to that, how do you believe the United States should look at their actions and prepare and potentially react? Um, a great question, Congresswoman. I'll be glad to address those. Um, so we've seen this movie before in the East-South China Sea. Um, and, and Russia has taken a chapter, and maybe they wrote the book on this. When we start looking at the militarization of natural islands, not man-made, um, that have the ability to deny access to any military activity, um, but particularly that of the United States. Um, when Russia is launching uh, ice-breaking corvettes that can carry a cruise missile that can range, um, and, and now we have very short windows of time of notification for NORTHCOM NORAD to have awareness that we now have an inbound conventional strike um, being launched from the Arctic by, by one of these ships. What's up with that? Um, and, and so what we don't have is, you know, confidence in terms of Russia's way ahead, you know, claiming all the way up to the North Pole as its expanded continental shelf. Um, 350 miles, you know, is the limit under the law of the Sea Convention, which Russia has thumbed its nose at. The same thing with the Northern Sea Route. Not today, but as we look to listen to Dr. Natalie's brief and we look at uh, CO2 methane releases, as, as we get more carbon dioxide, which by the way, takes about a century to metabolize from the atmosphere. Um, that drives temperature, which drives sea level rise. So is Russia looking at the long game? That not today, but at some point in the near future that the Northern Sea Route will become a viable uh, corridor for the Asia-European markets, primarily to move LNG from the Amal Peninsula. Huge economic driver, but that is also what drives Russia's economy, which they use to leverage and influence other nations as well. So all of this, it, it cuts across the full spectrum of diplomatic law of the sea convention, governance, um, our lack of awareness, which is information, uh, because we haven't invested in that infrastructure, the militarization of the Arctic and economically. Russia is playing this on all four fronts. Admiral, when you say the, the lack of information because we haven't invested there, could you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Yeah, so um, we, you know, we send our icebreakers up there and once they get much above 72 degrees north, um, our investment in satellite um, infrastructure uh, is now on the horizon or nearly below it. So we, we don't have adequate space-based technology to improve awareness uh, and more importantly to improve our bandwidth to move data um, so so that remains a challenge in the high latitudes for us right now and is that a lack of prioritization from your perspective or from your experience um, a, a lack of real understanding of the potential threat what would you attribute that to i mean certainly uh, funding i'm sure yeah and, and, and from my opening statement uh, we have great great directives under three presidential administrations that that underscore this 
but you know it came out time late in those administrations as we say you know we have a we have a, a strategic skeleton but we haven't put any flesh on the bone um and, and those tend to not carry forward from one regime to the next so we have that opportunity right now maybe cop 26 is that catalyst to say hey we need to double down on our effort here in the arctic i hope we do well, and I see Dr. Doro um, shaking her head as well. Um, in the remaining 30 seconds that we have left, um, putting the meat on the bones, if you could give us uh, just a, a couple things that would put the meat on the bones in terms of our ability to really understand and track this threat, what would you recommend we as Congress uh, advocate for? Um, a, deep, a, a deep water port in the Arctic, um, increased bandwidth uh, for communications and that also affects communications for indigenous residents as well um, investing in exerting u.s sovereignty which means icebreakers um, and, and icebreakers mean they can also carry militarized uh, equipment as well so um, using the norway russia model and by the way canada is making those investments as well you know leveraging our partners especially with our, our partners to the north uh, and finally, ratifying the Law of the Sea Convention. Okay. Um, thank you very much, uh, Admiral Zunkoft and uh, Chairman Keating. Thank you for your indulgence in letting me go over. Um, and thank you to our Thank audience. you so much. Uh, as a matter of fact, if Dr. Duro could do this quickly, you had attempted to uh, answer that as well. Could you do that in 30 seconds? Is that possible? Yes, I think so. Uh, it, it's fairly clear, and I think the commandant and others have said this, that infrastructure is one of the is one of the key elements here. It's a it's a key element for research. It's a key element in terms of energy. It's a key element in terms of security, as well as a key element for the impacts of climate change upon our communities. And I think this shouldn't be underestimated. And the commandant is right. We are late to the wake up call as far as the United States is concerned. Our communities are already facing and living with substandard infrastructure. The final comment I want to make is the, the reference to the norms, the rules and and responsibilities under public international law in terms of uh, UNCLOS in particular. I think there are a whole host of um, issues that we have to be mindful of, especially against the backdrop of Russia's activity and the interests of China. These two are constantly scanning the globe for their energy security, their food security, their national security. What about our security? Thank you. Uh, Chair recognizes uh, Congressman uh, Peter Meyer for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to our, our speakers uh, who are here today on this important issue. I, I uh, had the opportunity to visit uh, Franz Josef Lind and Svalbard um, on the Arctic Circle a couple of decades ago, and it's it was clear then that we had um, not a significant American military interest or presence, and just how far that, that needle has shifted uh, with the icebreaker gap that we have that, um, uh, especially Admiral, you've spoken to and Mr. Coffey as well, it's been very clear. And the recent, uh, well, relatively recent, but um, ramping up of use of Novaya Zemlya by the Russians for missile testing, you know, shows that they are taking advantage of the fact that we have, you know, cast our eye to, granted, incredibly important parts of the world, whether it's um, Asia Pacific or, or the CENTCOM AOR, uh, at the same time, we can't afford to ignore what's going on. So I, I appreciate that, we, that we're a having this hearing, uh, but b that there's been a commitment across administrations in order to try to address that icebreaker uh, capability gap. Um, 
you know, I just, I'm going to go to Mr. Coffey uh, in a second, um, but Admiral, in your view, is there anything that we in Congress can be doing to try to expedite? Obviously, you know, for the past, uh, this administration, the past 2 administrations have also affirmed, you know, our commitment to uh, engaging in the Arctic. Um, is there anything left in Congress's court or is this um, going to be flowing through executive policy and procurements on the DOD side and uh, Coast Guard side that have already started to progress? Yeah, um, thank you, Congressman. And I'll talk, first of all, what we need to do domestically. Um, and, and as we look at who was there, who was not there at COP26, um, uh, we really need to double down our efforts or, or what are we doing to adapt to a changing climate? Um, as, as we heard from um, Dr. Dodoro, we, we have 31 villages. I was out in Sheshmarif, um, which is literally washing into the sea. That is one of the 12 villages that's looking to relocate. Army mm -hmm. Corps of Engineers sunk some money in there to build revetment. Um, but first and foremost, uh, you know, we need to do the humanitarian thing uh, for our First Nations that, that reside in, in the Arctic region. Um, and, and the second is, you know, we need to step up and be a global leader in this domain as well. Um, I stepped up as Commandant of the Coast Guard because our military, I sit with the Joint Chiefs, are focused on, uh, at, at that time, was Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, and violent extremism. There was nothing left on the plate to make room for the Arctic. It says, okay, I'll take the Arctic. Uh, we now have a defense strategy that came out in 2019 uh, that now includes the Arctic as well. So, you know, we're making policy statements, we're writing strategies. Uh, but now it's time for us to, you know, peel those back another layer and then where do we need to make smart investments? The immediate one is we need to adapt to a climate change and, and two, we need to invest in our ability to exert sovereignty in this region. Thank you, Admiral. And, and Mr. Coffey, um, you know, it, I think this is the first time I've heard in, in a committee hearing in quite a while, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, um, you know, it, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on on what the benefits of the, the U.S. Uh, being formally a, a signatory to UNCLOS, uh, the drawbacks um, is, and, and just where we go from here. I mean, both in the Arctic and freedom of navigation operations with Russia expanding uh, its its continental shelf definition and uh, you know dropping little flags you know ever further away from what I think anyone would rationally call uh, its territorial water what we're seeing in, in China with, you know, many dashed plans um, in order to, again, just assert, uh, assert that control, you know, is it, is it worth revisiting UNCLOS or uh, should we focus on other methods in order of asserting a global standard around navigation operations? Well, in terms of uh, the enforcement of global norms and laws when it comes to maritime operations, the U.S. Navy for many decades has set the standard uh, on what is the norm in terms of um, maritime law. Uh, and also, in addition, many of the maritime boundary disputes that the United States had, well, there, we only have two maritime boundaries in the Arctic, one with Canada, one with Russia. So the one with Russia is a settled matter. The one with Canada is being worked out bilaterally. So in, in, in those two cases, the international norms and the boundary disputes, I do not see how U.S. ratification of the Law of the Sea Treaty would directly benefit the United States. And then on balance, uh, you have this issue of, of uh, encroachment on sovereignty. 
when, especially when it comes to the uh, extraction of uh, deep seabed minerals and the mechanism that is involved in sharing certain profits uh, from the extraction of these minerals with uh, landlocked countries around the world. There are many good questions that need to be answered about how this might impact the, the United States going forward when we have no idea how many potentially trillions of dollars uh, could be generated from this process and how much the United States and the US taxpayer would be forced to, to share. Thank you. And, and Mr. Chairman, with that, my time's expired, but I hope uh, someone can talk a little bit more about those manganese nodules that are, are sitting on that seabed. Thank you, Thank sir. You. The chair now recognizes uh, Representative Susan Wild for five minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, I'd like to direct this question to the Admiral. Um, Admiral, last month, the National Intelligence Council released an intelligence estimate on climate change and the challenges the climate crisis and uh, responses to it pose to our national security. And it says, uh, the, the intelligence report says, contested economic and military activities will increase the risk of miscalculation and de-escalating tensions is likely to require the adaptation of existing or creation of new forums to address bilateral or multilateral security concerns among Arctic states. At the same time as we continue um, actively working to protect our security and economic interests in the Arctic, could you discuss what you view as the most effective pathways for long-term de-escalation of tensions? Thank you, Congressman. Uh, I'll first address the de-escalation component of that. Uh, in 2016, and this is while the United States chaired the Arctic Council, uh, I worked with the White House and with State Department and, and was granted approval to invite Russia to Washington, D.C., my counterpart from the Russia Border Guard, uh, which then led to the creation of an Arctic Coast Guard Forum. Uh, my counterpart from Russia literally gave me a bear hug. Um, because their concern are posture statements. Um, you know, we have an adversarial relationship with Russia, but not an enemy. And there's a distinction between the two. Um, and we need to find areas where we can cooperate with one another. We do so on a regular basis with Russia on the maritime boundary line. Our 17th Coast Guard District in Juneau in real time shares information with Russia on incursions. And likewise, they do the same with us as well. So there's an opportunity. Um, and, and the other one is, is NATO. There was a significant NATO exercise uh, that, that was conducted where the U.S. played a huge role in this. I'm talking 250 aircraft, uh, over 70,000 troops um, doing an exercise in the Arctic, which is ice-free. We're talking in the North Atlantic, um, you know, not in the Chukchi, Barents Sea, uh, in the North Pacific side. Um, but that sends a signal to Russia. It's like, hey, we're paying attention. This is a focus area, and not just not just our NATO partners, but Finland and Sweden are, are significant players as well. Well, good. Then you uh, rendered my this part, second part of that question moot because I was going to ask you what um, what does Russia's chairmanship of the Arctic Council mean for our interests in the Arctic, and whether it presents challenges, and could it also present any opportunities? But it sounds like you believe that the opportunities are there. Is that right? Um, it, it is, Congresswoman, and the, the fact that Ambassador David Bolton, um, who, who was our envoy early on in the Arctic Council, now the director of the Arctic Executive Steering Committee, um, we have good continuity um, in terms of strategic vision and direction. 
um, at the highest levels in terms of our Arctic equities. All right, great. Well, I'm going to move on to Dr. Duro um, and, and just ask, since I have a, a little more than a minute and a half left, in your testimony, Dr. Duro, you described the long-time aspiration for an Arctic zone of peace. Could you expand on this vision and explain how the ongoing threat of confrontation in the region threatens the light, way of life of indigenous communities? Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I as I said um, at the outset of my comments, uh, we emerged in the midst of the Cold War, and we see that re-emerging uh, through a host of different actions by uh, much more powerful powerful forces than ourselves, and. Uh, Everything that has been addressed thus far by by all of the the um, commentators here is that presently we have a a level of cooperation and collaboration through the Arctic Council, through the Coast Guard Forum, through a host of different things. But in order to crystallize this this um, region uh, for purposes not only of ourselves. The designation of the region as a zone of peace, and I mean, the other examples and precedents are, are there, that this would then um, ensure that at a minimum, we can bring parties to the table, expand the table, uh, if you will, especially uh, when we look at the, the movements of uh, the Russian Federation, we look at the movements of China. Uh, you know, very few have mentioned, actually it hasn't been mentioned, the Central Arctic Ocean Fisheries Agreement and the, and the desire to look at the viability of, of commercial or industrial fishing in this area. You know, we, we have to find ways to stave these activities off. Um, so a zone of peace may lend itself to um, a, a level of dialogue that we haven't experienced thus far. Indeed, the Arctic Council is a constructive mechanism. It has spawned important international treaties. Um, many of those um, objectives are, in my assessment, unmet in terms of search and rescue, in terms of research and cooperation. Uh, but at the same time, in terms of the Arctic Council, there are no discussions about national security and defense issues. And so a full complement and, and an opportunity for a more frank discussion um, may be viable through exploring this uh, effort of a zone of peace. It has been it has been an objective since our inception in 1977, largely due to the Cold War and the lack of participation of our Siberian Yupik relations, our direct blood relations on the other side of the Bering Strait. Sorry Thank to be long-winded. So unfortunately, I am out of time, but it is a beautiful vision and I hope it is accomplished. Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for holding this very important hearing. Thank you, Representative. The Chair now recognizes Representative Dan Muser for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Keating. I appreciate being with you all. Thank you to our witnesses. Um, so I, I think throughout this testimony, we've seen the Arctic uh, is clearly increasingly become a focal point for, for a great power competition. Uh, Russia has increasingly engaged in energy development in the region and regularly conducts military exercises at their, uh, what we might be able to say is many Arctic bases. China as well has made its Arctic interest known. Uh, seeing the potential for uh, new trade routes. 
as an Arctic nation, uh, the United States must protect and advance our interests and push back against such interference uh, from potentially malign actors such as Russia and China. Um, the Arctic may hold as much as 13%, we don't know, but that's an estimate of the world's undiscovered oil reserve, one third of undiscovered natural gas reserves and critical minerals. Uh, so uh, Mr. Coffey, if I may, um, what role could Arctic oil, gas, and mineral resources play in global energy and resource security? Well, thank you for that question. If if you're a nation that's dependent on uh, the goodwill uh, of Russia providing your oil and gas, then I would say the opportunities for using the Arctic to diversify or become more energy secure are not very good. Uh, half of the world's landmass and half of the world's Arctic coastline is in Russia. And Russia has not shown uh, a willingness in any meaningful way to be a trustworthy partner when it comes to energy matters, especially for Europe. Uh, right now, China is the main uh, country that benefits from Russia's oil and gas uh, facilities in the Arctic region. And the reason why China benefits from this is because of the pressure that Western economic sanctions has placed on this sector inside Russia, which has forced Moscow to almost go to Beijing with a begging bowl. Uh, right now, Russia is very much the junior partner when it comes to the bilateral Russian-Chinese relationship. And a lot of that is built on the oil and gas that's in the Arctic that China needs and Russia needs money and investments to extract. Mr. Coffey, who's uh, uh, in, in numerically, who's stronger uh, has got more knowledge and more of a footprint in the Arctic, China, Russia, or the United States? Without a doubt, um, Russia. Uh, China's main uh, motivation in the Arctic is still one of uh, economics and trade and energy. Um, to the best of my knowledge, uh, I do not believe that the PLAN, the, the People's Liberation Army Navy, has even operated in the Arctic uh, Ocean. Uh, certainly, um, civilian vessels, civilian uh, scientific exploration vessels uh, that could easily be dual-hatted have operated in the Arctic Ocean, but the Navy itself I don't think has. Whereas uh, Russia has spent a, a vast uh, amount of money, time and resources, militarizing the Arctic region. And I, I just want to stress, as long as Russia does its militar, mil, militarization inside its own borders, it's, it, that's Russia's prerogative. But it's when you look at Russia's activities in other places outside of its borders, such as Ukraine, Georgia, Syria, Belarus, for example, that gives you reason to be concerned by Russia's activities in the Arctic region. Certainly, we have to certainly uh, anticipate that they will look after their interests and the United States must look after ours and assure that their interests don't um, overcome uh, our interests. Um, so how would you assess then the state of U.S. readiness to enforce our interests in the Arctic and counter the increasingly, what might be able to say, brazen uh, Russian actions? Well, I, we can't do it alone, as was already mentioned. We need to work with our partners and allies, especially in NATO. And we also need to make sure that we have uh, adequately resourced uh, maritime capabilities and, and, and air and ground capabilities 
design and equipped to operate in the harsh environments of the Arctic region. Are we there yet? No, we're not. Are we seeing increasing increases in funding to get us to where we need to be? I would say yes, we are, but it's, it's going very slowly. And as it pertains to NATO specifically, right now the Alliance is undergoing a strategic concept review where it's going to publish next year a document that is meant to guide the Alliance for the future threats uh, that it might face. And this would be a good time for the Alliance to finally recognize the Arctic region because NATO has the responsibility to defend Svalbard in the same way it has the same responsibility to defend Sicily. All right. Um, are we, in your view, effectively managing with our NATO partners the interests of the NATO partners uh, uh, versus uh, Russia and China? Or do we need a far better plan and need to be more aggressive carrying it out? Uh, and if you could, if you could limit that to 30 seconds since time is over. Uh, I'm sorry, Chairman. I thought I had a minute left. Okay. No, go ahead. We, do, we need a, a better coordinated plan and more resources directed at the uh, unique challenges that the Arctic region faces, for sure. Thank you. Thank you, Representative. Uh, Chair now recognizes Representative Dana Titus for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's been a very interesting hearing. Um, I, you've talked a little bit about, Dr. DeRoe did, about the impact of this increased traffic on the indigenous people. And I'd like to carry that just a step further. And it might seem mundane, but if we don't get ahead of it, it will become increasingly a problem. So to, to Dr. DeRoe and Dr. Natali, as we see more people in the Arctic, whether they're on scientific expeditions, it's military training, uh, shipping of business interests. And I would venture to say, you're gonna have increased tourism there too, as it becomes more accessible. What are we doing? Who's responsible for? Do we have the infrastructure to be sure the place doesn't just get trashed like we've seen in parts of the world where suddenly everybody wants to go there? Mm -hmm. That's a really important question. Thank you very much. And, and before I get into any further details, I think this is the other element of UNCLOS that's significant. Um, many forget that uh, UNCLOS isn't just about real estate. It is about a new, numerous other chapters in terms of uh, protection of the Arctic marine environment, for example. Um, I think that the, the, the increased shipping, the increased vessel trafficking, uh, will including uh, tourism and not just commodities in and out of uh, the Arctic region um, has numerous uh, effects, diverse effects. Um, interruption of marine mammal habitat uh, threatens our food security. I mean, if we if we look at uh, the Bering Strait alone and walrus and the reliance upon walrus, uh, never mind whaling, sealing and a host of other um, harvesting activities. Um, at the moment, we don't have uh, the infrastructure necessary even to enforce the polar code. Uh, we welcomed uh, the polar code, IMO's efforts to not only address issues of uh, protection of the marine environment, but uh, safety of life at sea, um, 
the infrastructure isn't there. Who's going to um, provide the infrastructure to ensure that there's safe discharge of gray water, for example? Uh, hence my earlier comment about the, the lack of in infrastructure. So th this question is of central concern. I will note that um, fortunately through efforts of the Coast Guard uh, and their dialogue and consultation with communities that at our communities that will be impacted by increased vessel traffic, uh, identification of lanes. Um, this exercise, I think, has to take place throughout the whole of the, the coastal areas that we as Inuit rely upon. So efforts across the whole of the Arctic should be taken to gain the input and the knowledge of our people as to safe passage um, where there's less disruption. Um, but I think your your question is important in terms of ensuring protection of the, the Arctic Ocean and the coastal seas or essentially the marine environment overall. And in my estimation, that's some of the value of the provisions and the other chapters of UNCLOS that many um, don't pay attention to because we're, we're more concerned about the high politics that have emerged in the region. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Natali. Yeah, if I could just add, um, yeah, and thanks for this question. If I could just add the, talk about a little bit about the impacts on Arctic lands. Um, you know, in the Arctic, the ice is infrastructure, right? So we're building these structures on ice that is rapidly freezing. And so it's something to keep in mind that both is, you know, increasing effects of climate change is putting the current infrastructure at risk. As we go in and build this infrastructure, though, we're also impacting the environment. And so the climate change can thaw the permafrost, but the infrastructure also can cause impacts. And it's not an impact that goes away the next year when the vegetation grows. When you thaw that ice and when that ground collapses, you've then committed yourself to a lifetime, many, many lifetimes of impact on that land that may not come back. And so this is something to be concerned about. It's extremely difficult to 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 turn the clock once the land has started to erode and once the land has started to collapse. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think it's something we should make a priority as we talk about our involvement in the region, not just the, our vis-a-vis -vis Russia, but maybe some collaboration. Admiral, could you just add to that? You were mentioned in and how we're going to keep the the lanes safe uh, as more and more traffic is there. Who's who's going to be our traffic cop in the Arctic to be sure we have safety with all these in, this increased uh, travel and traffic? Yeah, thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, the Coast Guard, uh, working with IMO, we have established a traffic separation scheme that goes through the Bering Strait. Um, so if you're northbound, southbound, it's like inter interstate highway. You you keep to the right. Uh, to minimize uh, a collision at sea. Uh, the bigger challenge is, well, what happens if we have a maritime incident, an oil spill? I was in charge of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, and at my disposal, I had 49,000 responders, 6,500 ships. Um, I could maybe at best get 50 responders mm. uh, in, in any of the villages that would be impacted uh, by an oil spill in, in that part of the world in the most pristine environments and yet the most unforgiving environment when it comes mm. to doing any type of pollution response. So the more we can do on prevention, uh, which includes safe ship routing, um, the better prepared we will be. But the human factor will always have a role in that. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Representative. Uh, Chair now recognizes uh, Representative Dean Phillips for five minutes. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, greetings to our witnesses. Uh, I think we all agree that the topic of today's hearing is of critical importance. That was great. And, and I believe we also all agree that uh, we can't go it alone. Uh, Arctic and non-Arctic actors are going to increase their provocative actions and activities, um, especially as the Arctic becomes more accessible because of warming temperatures and diminishing ice, uh, something we've already covered today. So it's clearly more important than ever to find opportunities of common ground and cooperation and shared interests amongst our friends and even our foes. Uh, that is exactly why I introduced the Arctic Diplomacy Act of 2021 uh, to establish a United States ambassador at large for Arctic affairs and increase U.S. strategic engagement uh, in the region. I'm proud that the legislation has been included in the EAGLE Act, which we of course passed out of committee, and that the Arctic diplomacy strategy from the bill was also included as an amendment to the recently House passed NDAA. And of course, with Russia currently chairing the council, uh, the U.S. has to be mindful about our diplomatic presence. Uh, so first question to you, Mr. Coffey, how will having a senior department official with the rank of ambassador uh, at the table be favorable to the United States and also to the free world? Well, it, it would be very welcome because it would it would put the United States at uh, equal level in terms of diplomatic status with other Arctic nations around the world. And I think it would be a beneficial way for the US to exert diplomatic influence in, when we debate issues related to the Arctic. I appreciate it. Uh, Admiral, to you, how can the DOS and DOD complement each other uh, relative to priorities uh, in the Arctic? Yeah, Congressman. Well, we, we're already doing that, and I think the, the platform we used was the, the Arctic Coast Guard Forum um, to build trust-building measures, um, doing at-sea operations with the Coast Guards of all eight Arctic Council nations. Um, to your previous question, um, we need to revisit the Arctic Executive Steering Committee, um, which went into hiatus um, for a period of about four or five years. It was reactivated in September of 21. Um, as I said earlier, chaired by career ambassador David Bolton, um, who has the bona fides that, that you alluded to in terms of ocean policy and, and Arctic awareness. Um, and it was also our envoy when Russia last chaired the Arctic Council. Um, so we have good continuity there. Um, and so there may be an opportunity as we look at, you know, you know, do we have the right breadth and depth in the Arctic Executive Steering Committee as, you know, so we don't create, you know, competing frameworks um, with the focus area on, on the Arctic domain. I appreciate that too. And, and Mr. Coffey, any, any thoughts on that uh, response? Sorry, my, I had a bit of delay in the, in the uh, connection. Uh, no, I, I think that we are seeing more synergy between the two, and I think that is a positive thing. Uh, and we're only now starting to understand some of the, um, we're only now starting to understand why uh, many of the challenges we face in the Arctic require uh, not only this um, multilateral approach that we talk about on the international stage, but more of an interagency approach inside the U.S. government, but, but also uh, more coordination with the states at the state level and sub and sub-state level, like with indigenous communities and also local authorities and municipalities and counties in Alaska. Uh, thank you. Thank you both. Uh, last, uh, to Dr. Natali, uh, of course, COP26 just wrapped up. I would welcome your thoughts 
relative to the Arctic related outcomes and commitments uh, on the heels of the summit? Anything, any perspective you want to share, I'd welcome it. Um, yeah, I, so the last IPCC report, AR6, um, was did account for carbon emissions from permafrost, but not appropriately. So I think that's something that really needs to happen, I think, in our conversations about, um, you know, whether we're going to make it to one point or keep temperatures below 1.5 and 2C, we, we need to start accounting for, fully accounting for carbon emissions from the Arctic, which currently still is not happening. Um, and then I think the other thing I'd like to see more conversations on is just about uh, loss and damage of Arctic lands as a result of erosion and permafrost. And I and I think that the um, you know there there was more um, voices of Arctic Indigenous people I think at this COP, but I think that needs to be stepped up quite a bit more. Thank you, and I want to thank all our witnesses for elevating, helping us elevate this important issue, and for all the work you do. Thank you, Representative Chair. Now recognize Representative Brad Schneider for five minutes. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, I want to thank the committee for holding this important hearing. I want to thank the witnesses uh, for making your time, sharing your uh, perspectives and, um, and, and views uh, on this important issue. As I read the, the testimony last night as I um, listened to the question and answers uh, today, it, it seems like we're facing a lot of dichotomies, not just the dichotomy of, of, of freeze versus thaw, but you've got the issues of uh, climate change leading to um, uh, challenges in preserving uh, a pristine uh, wilderness versus utilizing the opportunities presented. You have challenges of, um, uh, opportun of um, opportunities presented, but the threats coming from both climate change and, and, and global competition. Mutual shared interests of the uh, countries bordering the, the Arctic and the, the challenges to sovereignty. And ultimately, it comes down to the balance of um, stewardship, how do we uh, preserve and, and, and deal with these threats uh, versus global competition? And I think those are, are some of the, the challenges, and, and I appreciate the input uh, you all have, have had here. Um, if, I, if I can turn to Admiral uh, Zunkum and, and thank you for your service uh, and the perspective you bring to this conversation. Um, you know, given, if I take it even a step further, the, the biggest challenge. Purpose of this hearing is to talk about climate change and the impact of, of security. Uh, you have experience both in the Pacific Atlantic Gulf of, of Mexico. Um, how will climate change affect not just the Coast Guard's ability, but but our national ability um, achieving our mission, operating? You've touched on some of that, but you know, at the end of this hearing, if you could just wrap it up very briefly. Well, thank you, Congressman. I think as we heard earlier, uh, due to the challenges of just accessing the Arctic to begin with, um, almost defaults to a military role, be it search and rescue, an oil spill response. Um, we have 31 villages, uh, 12 of which are looking at moving to higher ground. Um, all of those uh, would fall under what we call the defense support to civil authorities, yet another mission for the Department of Defense. Um, to look at. So often we just look at the Arctic as pure competition, um, but we actually also have a responsibility to the residents in the Arctic domain as well, to some of the most prescient threats that they face right now. Um, everything I look at as greenhouse gases go up, there's a linear relationship between that temperature and sea, sea level going up. What happens when sea ice retreats, it's that natural breakwater for these coastal communities that no longer exist. Uh, and now they have harsh storms that are literally washing these villages into the sea. Um, the whale hunting, walrus uh, harvesting, 
they have to go further offshore. The Coast Guard now seasonally places uh, a squadron of aircraft in Kotzebue, which we never did before because uh, these villagers have to go much further and are at greater risk out there as well. Um, we did put three CubeSat satellites uh, into space uh, that pick up search and rescue transponders to improve our, you know, where are they? But the response times are still significant. Hundreds of miles from the nearest deep water port, Dutch Harbor, to the north slope of Alaska. So, so challenges uh, still remain in terms of any sustained presence in the high latitudes. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, and maybe if I can turn to uh, uh, Dr. Natali. You know, from a preservation standpoint, the, the ecology of, of, of the Arctic, uh, the idea of stewardship versus competition, how does that play out? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would prioritize stewardship. I feel like the long-term um, security risks are much, much higher, both in the Arctic and globally, if that's not prioritized. Um, in terms of the different interests in the Arctic, it seems to me, and I think the Admiral has brought up a couple of times about remote sensing. Um, I do think many interests can be met with increased prioritization of satellite remote sensing, both at increased spatial and temporal resolution in the Arctic, because yes, there are some satellites now, and we do have a lot of information that's coming out of them, um, but because the Arctic is so far north and it's dark and it's cloudy a lot of the time, um, I think there's a lot of information and increased information we can get um, for all of these security needs that have that have come up in this conversation so far. So thank you. Right, and in the last few seconds, Dr. Durow, I mean, you represent people living in this area. Um, we welcome your thoughts as well. Well, I think that there are um, a, a host of different perspectives. I just quickly wanted to uh, point to some resources that um, may be helpful, and uh, in particular, the Status of Tribes and Climate Change Report that has recently come out. Uh, I think this is a useful resource that helps to quantify the impacts of, of climate change. I think bottom line, um, inclusion of the voices of Inuit, uh, I think this is a really, really important um, matter that hasn't been fully explored and potentially this Arctic Diplomacy Act and the opportunity for focused and coherent and coordinated efforts uh, would really assist not only uh, the US government and all of its branches, including all of the all of the, the military branches, um, but inclusion of uh, our voices in relation to all of these relevant and pertinent questions that have been raised in the in the course of this particular hearing. Well, thank you. And Mr. Coffey, I'm sorry out of time, um, but uh, I, I yield back to the chairman. Thank you very much. Thank you, Representative. Uh, I just want to have one uh, uh, question in conclusion for a brief answer. Uh, as a follow-up, and, and that's this, that the, particularly with Admiral Zunkoff and uh, with Mr. Coffey, from the security standpoint, the emphasis was the advantage the U.S. has in the Arctic is the strength of our allies. So I want to ask uh, Dr. Natali, and I, I want to ask Dr. Uh, Dura, what about the strength of our allies and our cooperation in dealing with the indigenous community and the scientific community. Is that as strong as it has to be? Is, is that on a par with what, we're, uh, what we've discussed in terms of our uh, security alliances? Is that kind of cooperation and information sharing and coordination 
there uh, for those important communities. Just the, the two doctors, if you could. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that um, more could be done uh, in a substantive way. Um, for example, the Inuit Circumpolar Council uh, has become an observer to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We are uh, shaping ways in which we can co-produce knowledge uh, through our understanding of uh, what we see and feel and hear uh, on an everyday basis out there and on the on the sea ice and and on the land and i greatly appreciate dr natalie's reference to infrastructure and ice being infrastructure this is this is, aligns with um, our perspectives but i think that more could be done uh, in order to recognize and respect um, our right of self-determination in research meaning uh, an embrace of uh, indigenous knowledge holders and embrace of indigenous knowledge generally. And we have um, presently a, a project um, to identify the ethical and equitable, fair and just engagement of indigenous knowledge holders. And we look forward to sharing the outcomes of that particular project with all, the, all of those interested, not just in the United States, but uh, indeed in um, a host of different intergovernmental fora across the globe. So we have much to contribute, including um, uh, assessments and guidelines and protocols such as uh, those emerging in this uh, particular project. So more can be done. Great, thank you. Finally, Dr. Natalie. Um, yeah, I think um, because the way scientific research is funded, um, there, there tends to be in many, many individual projects, and there certainly is coordination amongst the scientific community. Um, the permafrost world, the permafrost carbon network is one of them. Um, but there's no strategic plan mm. for addressing some of these issues, and there's no strategic plan for Western scientists and indigenous scientists and knowledge holders to work together. So there's definitely examples of that happening, um, and there's definitely examples of collaboration with U.S. and Russian scientists, say, um, but, there, but there's challenges, and there's challenges that individuals overcome. Um, but I feel like there could be some more top-down support if this is a priority to, to make this happen. And I think we can advance the science and advance the protection of the Arctic and sort of sharing of knowledge of, of both Western and indigenous knowledge if this was prioritized in some strategic way. Well, thank you so much. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us and you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.